Hello everyone, this is Adam James from the Storyteller Podcast. I'm sorry about the delay in uploading these new chapters of Arona. Unfortunately, I had some health problems and had to undergo a major surgery. Thanks to all of you who wrote me such nice messages. We're going to start off with a bonus episode detailing the history of Russo, who just betrayed his best friend, King Richard. And the next episode, we'll return to New London. Now let's get started. Chapter 23 of Arona, The History of Russo To better understand Russo and his recent poor decisions, I feel it is necessary to explain more about him and his people. I had learned background information about Russo while staying in his city, Castone, and reading the history of his people there in the library. More importantly, I came to truly understand Russo personally since then, which I will explain at a later date. Russo is the last of his kind on Arona, a relic. He came from an ancient people, the Kora, who first arrived on Arona nearly 18,000 years ago. The Kora are a beautiful people, who almost look human with striking features, tall slender builds, and light tan skin. They all have glistening silver hair and unique foggy green eyes. After arriving, they struggled to adapt to the harsh conditions and mysterious cultures of the people already on Arona. The climate of their homeworld was unlike that of Arona, with a constant temperature of about 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 49 degrees Celsius. The Korra were culturally, technologically, and mentally superior to all beings on Arona before they arrived. Their civilization had developed for hundreds of thousands of years back in their homeworld of Kokolina. They had evolved to a point where there was no war between the Kora, no capitalism, no individual greed. Their society did not suffer from such primitive weaknesses as substance abuse or violence. Unlike humans, every being was connected through a collective desire for their fellow man's happiness and progression. This connection was felt emotionally and mentally in unison. Each person's joy, sadness, and desire was exactly the same as their neighbor. Everyone was taken care of equally. They didn't have a king or queen or leader. They didn't feel there was a need, as they all thought exactly the same. It's difficult to even comprehend. From what I gathered from reading some of the histories of Arona and Russo's vast library, which had personal accounts of several Korra, their home world of Kokolina was a utopia of sorts. When the Korra arrived in the frigid far north of Arona, they struggled to stay alive. They were extremely dependent on their technology, which no longer worked once they arrived on this new planet. Eventually, they moved south and established a small camp along the Amerian River, near the present-day kingdom of Elden. During their journey south, many Korra were killed by wandering tribes of barbarians and thieves. Others simply succumbed to the cold. Coming from a world of constant peace didn't help the Korra's chances of survival. They didn't know how to fight, nor had they ever even used a weapon or seen one. After some time, they learned to survive by hiding in the nearby Zox Mountains. They established a hidden kingdom there, and slowly they began to learn the ways of Arona. Unable to fight, for they couldn't bear the act of killing, the Korra established a trade network. They traveled in secret trading beautifully carved and finely crafted jewelry and jewels that they mined in the Zox Mountains. Working as a collective, they quickly flourished, 
Word rapidly spread of their beautiful and masterfully created jewelry, and soon every person of wealth on Arona desired it. The Kora became exceedingly affluent, and with the means to better provide for themselves, their population boomed. Thousands of years passed, and the golden age of the Kora was established on Arona. They built a marvelous network of hidden cities inside the mountains. For above all, the Kora were great artisans and metalworkers. They had never seen glowing metals, minerals, and stones such as were found on Arona. They became obsessed with gathering as much of it as possible. Every detail of their cities was well thought out and perfectly planned and decorated. Artwork became their legacy. Beautiful carvings in stone, wood, and precious metals filled every hall and walkway. As the Korra became more successful, they became less secretive and as a result, careless. They expanded their underground cities and eventually built large windows near the tops of the mountains to let in natural light. They used this light to grow expansive underground gardens and orchards. Rumors spread throughout Arona of their enormous wealth. Talk circulated of cities built of precious metals and magnificent hordes of great treasure buried in the Zox Mountains. As culturally advanced as the Korra were, it's important to note that they did suffer from one massive flaw, greed. Not individual greed, but even worse and more destructive, collective greed. This was never an issue on their home world, as collective greed helped the Korra develop quickly into an advanced society by constantly encouraging each of them to better the group. But on Arona, where there are many different types of beings, this greed started to create serious problems. The Korra became obsessed with the fine metals of Arona and the objects they could create from them. They would do anything to acquire more. Eventually, they made enemies by trading with certain kingdoms and not trading with others in order to obtain larger amounts of fine metals and minerals. Several ancient kingdoms grew angry and they set out to destroy the Korra and plunder their wealth. They tried many times to follow their traders, but would always lose them in the dense forests that surrounded the Zox Mountains. These Korra traders had become experts of stealth and could vanish into secret, hidden underground doorways in the darkness. These doorways led to long underground passages that extended many miles in a complex maze system. These passages were lined with booby traps, making them impossible to navigate. Even if someone found one of the doorways and was able to open it, they were never able to find their way out. Countless scouts from these kingdoms were sent to search the Zok Mountains and the surrounding forest in search of the mythical cities of the Korra. None would return, as the Korra had also booby-trapped the land surrounding their mountains. More powerful than any trap, however, was the legend they managed to create. They installed complex sound instruments in the passages that would produce an eerie howl that haunted the Zox Mountains. Eventually, a rumor developed that the lands were haunted, and any man who entered there would never return. This helped keep out wandering tribes and barbarians. Wild beasts were brought in by the Korra to further encourage outsiders to stay away. These beasts were cared for by the Korra, and they fed on the growing flow of incoming scouts who'd fall into their traps. For thousands of years, these precautions kept the Korra safe. Unfortunately, one day, high atop one of the Zox peaks, two scouts spotted one of the Korra working on a hidden window. 
The windows weren't like normal windows and that they couldn't easily be seen and were built to look like rock. They were always placed on such an angle and height that one could never walk upon them. Yet from time to time, they needed repair. The scouts watched the repairs for several hours and then saw the man enter the mountain through the window in the darkness. That night, the scouts climbed up to the window and eventually found a way to open one of the panels. They took turns peering down into the marvelous glowing city of fine metals and beautiful workmanship, unlike anything they had ever seen. Nothing so great and wonderful had ever been created on Arona. The scouts tried to return home with the news, but one of them was eaten by a wild beast along the way, and the other barely escaped additional Korra traps. Once their king, King Jeronias of Lari, was made aware of the truth behind the legends of the Korra cities, he prepared to conquer them and seize control of their vast wealth. The king gathered a large army and marched into the Zox Mountains, led by the surviving scout. Many of his men fell victim to the traps and beasts, but eventually what was left of the army reached the window. Ropes were lowered down into the city, and total slaughter ensued. Korra men, women, and children were butchered like animals. King Jeronias had instructed his men to leave no one alive. He didn't want word to get out of his conquest, fearing that his enemies might join up against him, knowing of the legendary treasure he would now hold. He also knew that genocide would not sit well with his allies. The Korra didn't fight back. They simply ran away. However, they didn't get far, as King Jeronias had surrounded the mountains with several legions of men and wild dog-like creatures that would hunt those fleeing. During this time, Russo was but a young boy of nine. When he told me this part of the story, I remember his eyes tearing up. He recalled the day of slaughter fleeing with his mother, father, and two younger siblings. They were one of the few families that were able to escape out one of the passages, fleeing into the forest at the base of the mountains. They were tracked and hunted for several nights by King Jeronias' men. One night, as they slept in a cave, they heard the dogs approaching. His father whispered for Russo to go with his mother and younger siblings and quickly escape through the back exit. He climbed up on the rocks first and squeezed up through a crack that led to the outside. The howl of the beastly dogs was upon them, and he heard his father scream as he was torn to shreds at the main entrance of the cave. He frantically reached his hand down to pull up his younger brother and watched as several of the dogs leapt on his mother and younger sister. He tried to pull up his brother, but the dogs grabbed him by the foot, pulling him down. Another dog came climbing up the rocks, charging at Russo. It bit deep into his hand before falling down as it could only fit its head through the small crevice. Russo ran as fast as he could in the darkness, until he fell and tumbled down a hill and hit his head on a large rock, knocking himself unconscious. The following day, he woke up in an unfamiliar hut, sleeping on top of a pile of animal hides, including some that looked like those same dogs that had killed his family. A fire crackled in the center of the hut, and a large, burly man entered with a strange, glowing drink. He said something to Russo that he didn't understand, and motioned for him to drink. Russo drank, and what happened after that was a memory he was very fond of. His life changed that day forever. He felt instantly better, stronger, smarter. He felt angry and vengeful, unnatural feelings for the Korra people. Russo stayed with his rescuers for many years and was raised by them as their own. He learned their ways and was taught to hunt and fight. 
During this more ancient time on Arona, the Arome was little known. Those who did know of it only used it as a medicine or in religious ceremonies in small doses and very infrequently. He was the first of the Korra to taste the Arome. Once he had that taste, he never looked back and dedicated every waking moment to finding more. More, more, more. It was never enough. Like his people before him and their lust for fine metals, Russell's lust for the Arone soon controlled his every thought. Greed is a terrible weakness, but for Russo, he considered it his most powerful ally for more than a thousand years. One morning when Russo woke, he realized the last of his people had died in the night. He was no longer connected to any Korra. As the sole survivor of his people, and through the change that occurred because of a lifelong addiction to their own, Russo eventually became a very different person than his ancestors. It was impossible for the Korra people to feel compassion or loyalty for other beings, only for each other. This characteristic just didn't exist in their DNA. With the extinction of his people, Russo no longer had a collective good to look out for, only himself. That was all he knew how to do. From that day on, Russo would only serve himself. He would seem loyal and friendly, but this was in order to achieve his end goal. He became a master politician and merchant. Only one thing mattered to Russo, Arone. The pull of the Arone was so strong for him that it was impossible to resist, stronger than hunger or thirst or the will to live. Only a true addict would understand. Every thought was occupied with it. Addiction didn't exist when there are many more Korra to delude such tendencies. Everything was different now. Russo was all alone, a slave to his own desires. Combine this obsession with the intense collective species greed that each Korra was naturally born with, and you have a recipe for disaster. The full power of the Rome was still a mystery to but a few monks in the far north. Russo was one of the first to drink of it on a regular basis. At first, he stole what was available in the village, a little sip here, another there. At the age of 16, he was finally taken on the walk of manhood to the source of the Arone, many miles away. He had waited seven long years for this event and went with his adopted father and the elders of the tribe. An elaborate ceremony was performed, and it was then that Russo, for the first time, learned of the source of the Arone. It was a seemingly small spring, located high up on a rock formation above the sea. During the ceremony, Russo was given a decorative horn cup that had been filled with the spring's pure arone. Pure arone. Russo didn't know there was such a thing. Unbeknownst to him, the arone he had become addicted to back in the village was always heavily diluted. When he drank, the experience was beautiful beyond words. It was more powerful, more potent, more wonderful, and much more addictive. He saw the future and the past. His mind was open and his thoughts moved at a speed that astonished him. He remembered and understood everything he had ever learned, achieving complete understanding. Because the Korra was such a highly evolved race, Russo proved to be the perfect vessel for the Arone and all its potential. Several days later, after much internal torment, Russo decided to leave the tribe who had cared for him since he was a small child. He wasn't getting as much of the drink as he had wanted, and longed for more of the pure Rome. He knew it was forbidden, 
that he was never to return to that sacred spot until he too had a boy that was ready for the walk of manhood. He knew if he broke this sacred law, he could never return to his adopted tribe and family, but the temptation was too strong. One night, he disappeared into the forest and made his way back to the source. After barely surviving the journey, he crisscrossed along the cliffs and rope bridges leading to the holy spring. Once at the source, he drank and drank and drank. In his village, he'd been lucky enough to steal the smallest sip of diluted arone, but now he was able to drink to his heart's content. The addiction that sickened his heart never let him stop to wonder what could happen to him. Russo's reaction to the pure Rhone was more powerful than any other being had experienced. Unbeknownst to him, unimaginable wonders were now at his fingertips. He became wise and intelligent beyond his years. He quickly learned the perfect amount of the drink to consume to experience its full potential and not be wasteful. Time passed and he built a small home in the rock, hidden from anyone that might come by. He used the skills he had learned with the tribe to feed and take care of himself. All day he dreamt of how he might get more around, though he had plenty in the source before him. He dug out large hidden pools in the rock and began to hoard the around in great quantities. Early one morning as he slept, he was awakened by a noise outside his underground home. He crept outside and saw three men, men unlike any he had ever seen before, filling their containers with a pure around. Anger filled him. My around, he thought. My around. He snuck up behind them, picking up a large rock as he got closer. He smashed the head of one of the men who was bent over filling his flask. His heart was filled with rage, watching his precious Aron spill out of the container and onto the ground. Another man ran towards him and slashed at him with his dagger. Russo grabbed his hand with strengths he had never known and thrust the dagger into the man's own chest. The third man froze with fear, then began running towards the bridges that led back to the cliffs. Russo frantically picked up a rock and threw it at the man. The rock hit him in the head square on and the man fell thousands of feet below to the sea. For the first time ever, Russo had taken a life. For the first time in the history of the Korra, a murder had taken place. Instead of guilt, Russo only felt anger and betrayal. Yes, he felt grief and disgust in himself and sorrow for a moment, but this quickly faded. The Aron is mine! he whispered to himself as he drank. That night, he went into a deep meditation. He knew now that his Aron wasn't safe and that more would come and try to take it. He set traps in the surrounding area, which worked for some time, but still more holy men continued to come. He needed help to protect it. Russo knew then that one man was not enough to protect the spring, so he came up with a plan to buy protection. At first, he tried to find precious metals in the nearby mountains, intending to trade for money. He was unsuccessful. Next, he tried to sell fur and meat to the nearby tribes. It wasn't enough. He needed much more money. Great wealth was needed to hire an army to protect himself and the source of their own, as holy men started to send an ever-growing onslaught of warriors in order to get back the sacred shrine. It pained him greatly just thinking of it, yet he knew what was necessary. He needed to trade some of his own in order to get the money and protection he required so that he could always be in control of the source. He knew that at any moment he might be overrun by others who could kill him, or even worse, make it so he couldn't ever partake of the drink again. 
In his mind, to live without the drink would be worse than death. But how much aroma was in his source? This he didn't know. Though he was now able to see glimpses of the future because of the aroma, it wasn't exact. It was a gamble he would have to take. When he'd finally hoarded enough pure aroma in his secret underground pools to feel comfortable selling some, he knew it was time. As long as I have enough to last forever for myself, he thought. Soon he perfected the recipe for maximum dilution, which enabled him to sell as little of the pure Rhone as possible while still keeping his clients happy and alive. Russo then became the greatest advocate of the drink to ever live on Arona. He convinced others of the great attributes of the Arona beyond medicinal purposes. Extended life, potential for visions, good health, increased strength, greater healing powers, the list went on and on. Russo was careful to never reveal his source. There were only a handful of springs on Arona, and unknown to Russo at the time, he was now in control of the main spring, which produced over 90% of the total supply. He amassed wealth quickly, traveling to nearby kingdoms, selling small amounts of the drink at higher prices than any precious metals or other goods on all Arona. Word spread of this magical drink, and kings and queens from all over Arona began sending buyers to the kingdoms Russo was rumored to have visited. The demand skyrocketed. Russo hired a small army of men to protect him and his growing trade empire. Castone was built, little by little, and eventually the source was fully protected. Over the years, Russo became rich beyond his dreams, richer than any king or queen on Arona. He was still conflicted. For as much as he hated to sell his prize to Rome, he loved the wealth and power that came with it. To Russo's credit, he told me that he still provided his adopted tribe with all the Arone they needed, which wasn't much. They still disowned him and refused to speak to him again. He had broken their most sacred law. Nevertheless, Russo had Arone delivered to their village every few months. Castone was eventually expanded to the palace and fortress it is today. Russo hired a large private army and established a no-go zone in the land surrounding Castone, which eventually became known as the Kingdom of Middleland, named for its relative centrality on Arona. This location was perfect for Russo's now expansive trade network. His near monopoly of the Arona gave him extreme power. Being the brilliant politician and strategist that he was, thanks to the pure Arona, he had every buyer sign a decree before they could be supplied a decree which reinforced two key stipulations. One, in the event that any caravan of Russo's Arone was seized, it immediately became the responsibility of all bordering kings and queens to send the necessary soldiers, with a minimum of two legions, to retrieve the stolen goods and destroy the party involved in its theft. The goods were to be returned to Russo. Two, in the event that a certain kingdom or kingdoms entered Middelin with a force more than 100 soldiers, whose sole purpose was anything other than the personal bodyguard of a traveling sovereign or delegate, all kingdoms were then required to send all available soldiers to defend Castone and declare war on the invading kingdom or kingdoms, destroying that kingdom unless otherwise notified by Russo. Word quickly spread that any thief, tribe, or kingdom that disrupted or prevented a trade would suffer the consequences. Even the small tribes and barbarians of the Outlands feared the wrath of Russo's many allies, and usually left the caravans alone. 
There were still a few incidents when wandering barbarians or small bands of thieves would ambush the caravans, either because they were unaware of the mandate or because they didn't care. Each time, they were hunted down by nearby allies and wiped out. Russo had done well for himself. He alone was responsible for not only creating a never-ending demand for the Aron through his discovery and marketing of its possibilities, but he had secured his position as the only real supplier. Unfortunately, in Russo's mind, it was a double-edged sword. Here he was, now the wealthiest being on Arona, living in one of the most opulent palaces and commanding the largest private army. But each month, more and more of his precious Arona was taken from him, and he could not figure out how to stop it. Over the years, he attempted to start many different types of businesses. He traded everything from slaves to fine silks, though nothing came close to the wealth from their own. He was stuck, unable to stop selling, living in constant fear that he wouldn't be able to pay his men and upkeep his estate, or worse, that the kingdoms he supplied would turn on him and invade if their own wasn't delivered. They all relied on their own and needed it to continue to live well past their natural lifespans, both for themselves and their subjects. The kings and queens knew that if for some reason they lost their supply of their own and weren't able to keep their subjects alive, especially their many powerful noble families, they risked losing control of their kingdoms. Time passed, and Russo accepted his fate. However, he never stopped thinking of how to keep more own, even though he was the only real supplier on the world. He thought about it every day and dreamed of controlling every known spring. Once he learned of the vast amount of Aron that was available in his little spring, he dreamt of what other springs might hold if mined properly. He hired an army of scouts that were sent to every corner of Arona in search of other sources. His insatiable desire could not be satisfied. After years of searching, Russo knew the location of four springs. His own, the little one in Elden, the tiny spring of Newdonia, and the Arone seeping through the small cracks of Nocer. Because of the large population of Nudonians, King Richard had become one of his best clients. Throughout the years, Russo and King Richard became great friends. Richard would frequently visit Russo at Caston to discuss their affairs and agreements. They would also strategize over the current policy towards certain kingdoms who were causing disruptive actions for their trade network. Russo would also visit Richard, spending a large amount of time with him and his family at their palace and summer residence in Newdonia. Russo generally liked Richard and his family. He admired him, for he was one of the few sovereigns who had many honorable and admirable attributes. Russo was drawn to the good in Richard, and desired to be more like him. It reminded him of his people, the Cora, and the natural good in them that Russo missed in himself. But whether he knew it or not, the real reason for his frequent visits to Dudonia, buried deep inside his subconscious, was his longing to see the spring of Nudonia at the Summer Palace. Every visit, he would make it a priority to see the source, often going several times in secret at night. Russo was obsessed with the spring, and each time he visited it, he thought of the potential this small source might have buried deep below. At one point, Richard's small spring looked very similar to Russo's now gushing geyser at Caston. But Russo would never tell Richard that, for Richard only used the spring for himself and his family, 
completely unaware of the amount that might be lying below. Over the years, Russo had developed a highly specialized drilling and piping system that filled his expansive pools, but this was a secret only Russo and a few trusted advisors knew. Richard did sometimes think it was slightly strange that Russo would want to visit his spring. Why would you want to visit my little spring? Richard would ask, when you already have so much. Russo always disguised his desire, saying it reminded him of home and that he only wanted to view it for a moment. On one occasion, Richard went with Russo and witnessed something rather strange that both puzzled and disturbed him. Russo became entranced, staring at the Newdonian spring for more than 10 minutes in complete silence. His eyes glazed over and his entire being began to glow. Richard made a joke about his appearance, but Russo didn't respond. He was so caught up in an emotional whirlwind of lust and greed that he couldn't even hear him. Russo covered it up nicely, and he was relieved when Richard shrugged it off. Hundreds of years passed, and Russo and Richard became closer than ever. As allies, they helped negotiate peace for the Fourth Great War of Verona, and established the longest continuous peace since the formation of the larger kingdoms. It was during this time, known as the Long Peace, when Russo began to turn on Richard. During the Long Peace, King Akat of the Taronks had begun to develop a plan that would extend his power. Akat was one of Russo's best customers, and he had become fanatically obsessed with the Aron and the new powers it brought him. The self-proclaimed Gog King knew that if he was able to one day control all the Arone on Arona, he truly would be the immortal god he thought he was, capable to decide who would live and who would die. Akat had spent many years perfecting his relationship with the Arone and the mysterious, unique abilities the drink gave him. King Akat was now able to read minds, which enabled him to understand Russo and use his weakness against him. Being able to see deep into Russo's thoughts and desires, Akat knew of his unquenchable lust for the drink and would use it to deceive him. It was this knowledge that made it possible for the king to finally convince Russo to join forces with him against Richard. The plan was that King Akat, Russo, and their allies would send their armies to conquer Newdonia in a surprise attack. This would be accomplished only with Russo's involvement. Russo was tasked with slowing the supply of Arone to Nudonia and their allies, thus weakening their armies and lowering their supplies. In addition, Russo was to send his army to Nudonia to help conquer the kingdom, using his friendship to lure Richard from his city so that they might capture him before the war. Without their king, Nudonia would be much easier to conquer. In return, Russo would be given Nudonia, arguably the greatest and most powerful kingdom on Arona. He would also be given control over Elden, Nocer, Nonia, and Indusland. King Akat and his allies would control the many remaining kingdoms. Akat knew exactly what he was doing. Russo dreamt of controlling all sources of their own. Now it was possible through Akat's well-planned offer. His greed clouded his judgment, and eventually he consented. Once Russo sent most of his army to Nodonia, King Akat made his move. Using the bulk of his army, known as the Legion of God, Akat and his allies easily overthrew Castone under the pretense of friendship. Russo was now a prisoner in his own city, locked in the high tower, watching his city fall under the control of his new enemies. Never before had Castone fallen. 
Even worse, Russo had now lost control of the Arome. All he could do now was wait. He knew before long his old friend would arrive with the largest army Arona had ever seen. He had betrayed his friend. A friend he knew would seek revenge for the terrible crimes that had been committed against him and his family. Angered by Akat's unforeseen betrayal, Russo eagerly awaited Richard's arrival. King Richard was coming, and Russo welcomed the wrath he would bring. That's it for this bonus episode of Arona. If you like this episode and want to hear more backstories of characters from Arona, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Adam James. Do you have kids, grandkids, nephews, or nieces? Well then please go check out my brand new podcast, the Storyteller Podcast Kids Edition. It's full of magic, music, and sound effects. Thanks for listening, especially all of you who have recently left those nice five-star ratings. I really appreciate it. See you all back here soon. Oh, by the way, are you on Instagram? If you are, come say hi. You can find me at Adam James Books. I'll see you there. Ah, I almost forgot the most important part. I wanted to say a big thank you to my newest patrons. You all make this podcast possible. Thank you, Annie, Emma, Mia, and Bo for your support. Now I'm off to work on the next episode. Bye for now. <laughs>